a person doesn't just wake up dead. Something happened. Who was the last individual with her? And what happened there? And then the can of worms just opened by itself. Because it was so secret, this case. Only few people know. So did I buy the apology that Rosemary issued to the court on that day? Mm -mm, not a chance. Family for Most is a concept that represents togetherness, love, and despite the occasional conflict, a bond that supersedes most. But recently convicted female serial killer and former police officer Normia Rosemary Nglovu saw her family more as a living and for the meantime breathing paycheck, ready to be harvested at will. Nglovu was found guilty for the murder of five of her own relatives and one of her lovers. She arranged the murder of her lover, sister, cousin, niece and two nephews to cash in on life and funeral policies. And according to the investigating officer on her case, she even tried to cash in on more policies while behind bars. Today on Boots on the Ground, behind South Africa's national headlines, we get an opportunity to speak to investigators, prosecutors and journalists who had a very direct hand in bringing Nomia Rosemary Nglovu to justice. We will hear about the ins and outs of the investigation, some of the charges that are still pending and finally we will dissect Nglovu's court persona and how it shifted when the media were allowed to cover her case. For Boots on the Ground, behind South Africa's national headlines, I'm your host, Paige Muller. Please be advised that the following episode of Boots on the Ground, behind South Africa's national headlines, includes descriptions of conspiracy and murder that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Nglovu's case captivated South Africans for a laundry list of reasons. At first glance, Nglovu seemed to be a mother, a caring daughter and a dedicated member of law enforcement. But things were definitely not as they appeared. Sunday Times reporter Naledi Shange followed Nglovu's case from the very outset. She explains who Nglovu seemed to be going into the trial and how she was perceived, not only by the journalists in the courtroom, but eventually by the nation, by the time her trial had concluded. Many other layers to Nomia Rosemary Nglovu also unfolded, and uh, they revealed her as a law enforcement officer who perhaps is also one of the most dangerous female criminals that South Africa has seen in quite a while. Um, but if one had heard the life story of Nglovu prior to arrest, they could perhaps see her as a person who had a dark cloud over her, who had a string of bad luck throughout her life. Because in her life, she faced more tragedies than most people ever get to face in the entire lifetime. She was married at a young age and her first husband died, leaving her with their son. But a few years later, the boy also died under mysterious circumstances. But this wasn't the end for Nglovu. 
Um, she had yet another shot at love, but that too ended in tragedy when her live-in lover, Maurice Mabasa, was brutally murdered in October 2015. His body was found dumped in Oliphant's Fontaine, and he left her with a baby that was just a few months old. Two years later, the toddler fell ill and also died. Between and after the deaths of her lovers and her children, Glovu had also lost numerous family members, including her sister, um, that sister's son, another nephew, uh, a cousin and a niece, and it was all under the most brutal circumstances. All of them were murdered, and from poisoning to strangling to being bludgeoned to death or struck over the head, the murders were just totally, totally brutal. But what shocked the country was when the puzzle set out by the investigators in the case proved that Ndlovu had killed or orchestrated each of the murders of all of these people. And it seemed as though her motivation was to cash in on funeral and life insurance policies. Um, the court heard that because of the unnatural manner in which all the six people died, Glovo had in many of the cases received double payouts from the numerous insurance companies where she had insured the lives of uh, all the people who had died. You know, as the case unfolded in the courts, it was like something from the novels, as the court heard how Nlovu had sourced hitmen, who she had first wanted to kill her cousin, and when they failed, she turned her sides to her elderly mother, Maria Moshwana. But the hitmen said they also failed to carry out that murder. Nlovu then targeted her younger sister, Joyce Nlovu. Now, Joyce Nlovu is an unemployed mother of five who lived in a village in Bushbuck Ridge. She got by on odd jobs and on social grants that she collected for her children. Now, it was the evidence that was heard in court that Glovo had wanted Joyce to be burnt alive in her house along with her five children. Call it a twist of fate, but the men who Glovo had entrusted with this heart-wrenching job were the ones who basically turned her over to police, sealing her fate and her arrest. Now, Ndlovu spent three years behind bars before she was trialed and she came face to face with the hitman in court who detailed how, like, she had given them instructions on how she wanted these murders to be carried out. But Ndlovu denied all the evidence against her and even downplayed video footage which was obtained by police in a sting operation. Ndlovu said it was her that uh, the court could see on the videos and she said she had said all those damning things about how she had wanted Joyce killed. But she said it was all an act and she had been coached by the hitman on what to say. The court obviously didn't buy her story. And uh, when the proceedings came to an end in November, the clinical psychologist who wrapped up Ndlovu's persona said she was a manipulative murderer who would most likely have killed again had she not been arrested. Five of Nglovu's relatives and her lover lost their lives in brutal murders between 2012 and 2018, all of which led to her pocketing about 1.4 million rand in life and funeral insurance policies. For these murders, Nglovu was handed six life terms just earlier this month and an added 100 more years for defrauding insurance companies conspiring to kill her own sister Joyce, Joyce's children and her own elderly mother. There is no doubt that Nglovu hid behind her uniform and badge. 
but it was in fact her brazen and, to be honest, downright cocky approach to murdering right under the noses of law enforcement that would eventually get her caught. Case prosecutor advocate Rihanna Williams, who handled the presenting of the Nglobu case, describes Nglobu's fatal flaw, which tipped off top cop and investigating officer Sergeant Mabunda. Sergeant Mabunda, in his evidence, he explained that uh, Rosemary Nglobu came to the police station, I believe Tembisa police station, with a packet of insurance death claims, a bundle of them, and he saw that she was completing it and immediately realized something is amiss. That was after the death of a partner, Maurice Yungwani Mabasa. And he realized something is amiss. Something is wrong here. And he asked for that policy documents. And once he, once he looked at the policy documents, he realized, listen, this man was killed. He was stabbed 79 times according to the post-mortem, and there's a life policy and all these money being claimed and claimed within a short period of time after his death. So he then started investigating, and his first movement was to contact the Fraud Insurance Bureau, uh, Crime Bureau, and they assisted him, and they gave him a list of all the policies, and then he realized there's a pattern. There was numerous family members deceased, unnatural death, and she received payouts from it. So the docket at the time, when he went to retrieve the dockets, had little information. Some didn't even contain witnesses' statements. And Sergeant Mabunda, I have to commend his effort and his dedication. He went to each and every possible witness. And through him, he he reached Mrs. Nwepe. Now, you will remember through the court proceedings, Mrs. Nwepe is a dear neighbor of Audrey Somisa and Lovu. And initially, she also didn't want to get involved. But Sergeant Mabunda, I believe through his kindness and his dedication, he managed to show to her, we are not here to harm you. We are here to seek justice, ultimately. And at the end of the day, we want justice. We want to know what happened to Somisa. A person doesn't just wake up dead. Something happened. Who was the last individual with her? And what happened there? And then the can of worms just opened by itself. Once that can of worms had opened, investigating officer Sergeant Mabunda would make sure that it would not be allowed to close again. He red flagged her among insurance companies as he continued to investigate the case, trying to uncover exactly how many other relatives she had killed to claim from insurance funds. Mabunda had also had the docket listed under another investigating officer's name in the hopes that Nglovu wouldn't find out before they were good and ready for her arrest. Here Sergeant Mabunda explains some of the lengths that they had to go to to keep the investigation a secret from Nglovu. Um, take me to the first time that you interacted with her. Was it when she came back to get the policies um, uh, photocopied? What was it like? At, on that day, I did interact with her. The only time we interacted with her was when uh, she claimed money from Vodacom Insurance. And there's this lady who she said, uh, uh, Mrs. Nerve, and said, we can't pay you. The visiting officer said, uh, we mustn't pay, we're still investigating. 
Then she came to the police station furious. That's where the threats came. Why telling these people not to pay me? What are you investigating? And I said, who said that? It's not. And she said, this, this person said, gave me the number. I found that person in my presence. That Mrs. Van and Murphy. I said to her, please pay her man. Why do you lie to her that you mustn't pay? And I said, oh, see, I told them that is not me. Then she left. After she left, I called them again. <laughs> and said, please phone her. You made a mistake. It was not Mabunda. We're doing investigation within our department. We will pay you after we have done all the investigation. She did that, as promised. Call her. Sorry, please forgive. It was not Mabunda. It was, it was us, our department of investigators. So as soon as we conclude our investigation, we're going to give it, give the payout. Immediately, I changed that file of, uh, Maurice, that murder case. I gave it to another captain who was swimming in back, Captain Jones. But physically, I'm having the docket, but on the system, it names someone else. It was a white person. From there, I was never traveled, conduct my investigation, running with those three cases. It was Maurice, Audrey, and Homo. Then around 2018, January, a colonel from uh, Timsa South where she works, he came near the station and informed me that, uh, that he got information that Rosemary wanted to hire Hitman to go kill his sister in, in Bushback Ridge and, and Pumlo. Then he informed the, the, then the former uh, district commander was General Chavan. Then General Chavan was aware that I'm busy with this case. Because it was so secret, this case. Only few people knows. It was me, my commander, General Shavani, and that person whom I gave the docket to investigate. Very few people knew about this. But they were sensitive with the policeman. Despite hiring others to do her dirty work, there was no mistaking that Nglovu was dangerous. Not just to her own family, but also to anyone she could link to her investigation. Kiana Ledi describes some of the intimidation tactics that Nglovu was implementing behind the scenes. It seemed as though the police officer tried tooth and nail to try to get out of prison. Uh, first, it started off by her allegedly trying to bribe the investigating officer in the case. This is Sergeant Keshi Beneth Mabunda. Last week, I sat with uh, Sergeant Mabunda in his office where he explained how um, on one occasion during uh, Rosemary's bail applications, this was back in uh, 2018, Rosemary had actually said uh, to Mabunda that, you know, she just needed him to receive money from her family, uh, which uh, he could register at the Johannesburg prison where uh, she was being kept. And this is how Rosemary would receive the money while she's in jail. Mabuda said initially he agreed to take uh, this money from Rosemary's family, thinking it was just an innocent gesture as the family could not reach the uh, Sun City prison where Rosemary was being kept, although they were attending the court proceedings. Mabunda said he was surprised and shocked when, after the court proceedings, um, Rosemary's sister as well as another gentleman who was uh, in the company, 
walked up to Mabunda and wanted to hand him a stack of money, not just 200 rand or 500 rand or not even a thousand rand, but a whole lot of money, uh, which they just were ordered to give to Mabunda. Mabunda said this seemed somewhat suspicious. It seemed like there had been an underlying message of some sort with the money being handed to him. And at that point in time, he, he saw or felt as though this was a bribe and that the money was not actually meant to be heading to the Johannesburg prison, as Ndlovu had said. So he refused to accept the money and um, rather advised the family to go to the Johannesburg prison themselves and register this money um, for Ndlovu. So this was the first attempt at Ndlovu trying to wrangle her way out of the court case and perhaps out of prison. Now Mabunda said that when this didn't work, Nomiya seemingly tried another tactic and this is a, a forceful one. According to a hitman who had been approached by Ndlovu from behind bars, actually, there was a hit that was put on Mabunda's life. Um, this hitman was supposed to arrange a meeting of some sort with Mabunda, and this is where he would be killed. But Mabunda, you know, being the person that he was, uh, I don't know, the hitman claimed that he felt sorry for Mabunda and he felt like the officer didn't deserve this. So instead of carrying out the hit, he actually informed Mabunda of it, and uh, that was how it was thwarted. The hitman went as far as saying that Rosemary had plotted uh, not only uh, Mabunda's death, but had even looked into killing Mabunda's son. Now, Mabunda had a young boy who was attending school in the Midrand area, and apparently Rosemary had threatened that she would bury Mabunda's son alive because she felt as though Mabunda was the thorn on her side who had fought tooth and nail to ensure that she stays um, in jail. Now, at this point in time, Rosemary had tried everything to get out of jail. She had um, firstly uh, put in a bail application, which failed. She took it through to the high court, where it also failed. So, you know, she had tried everything to get out of jail, and she was under the impression that getting Mabunda out of the way would essentially mean, you know, freedom for her. But it, it didn't it didn't happen that way. Instead, it made life tougher for Rosemary because Mabunda said after learning of all um, these plots that were happening, he started to keep an eye on his family. And first of all, he said what he did was he started to attend all of his son's extramural activities just so that he was sure that, you know, the boy was safe. And after these extramural activities, he would take the son home and ensure that he stays indoors and waits for his mother indoors. And Mabunda spoke about how life for his wife also changed because, for example, there were some occasions where she worked night shift, knocking off at around 10 p.m. And Mabunda said around the time of the threats, his life involved him going to his wife's workplace so that when she knocked off at 10 o'clock, he could escort her back home just to ensure her safety. Now, Mabunda said on some of the occasions when he drove um, behind his wife, uh, escorting her back home, he noticed that there were vehicles that were following um, his wife. And, you know, but all, all the while, Mabunda said he kept all of the secret from his family that there was actually a hit out on their lives, which was made by Nomia Rosemary Ndlovu. Now, following all these threats and, and, and all these things that Mabunda had noted and also received, he went through to the court and presented this information before the court, and it was agreed that Rosemary Ndlovu would be moved from the Johannesburg prison where she was being kept 
to Khosmampuru, which was a maximum security facility in uh, Pretoria. And that is where Rosemary stayed until the end of her trial. Um, we know that she tried to go back to the Johannesburg prison again following her conviction and sentencing, saying that, uh, you know, being there would be more convenient for her family because, you know, they lived closer to that area than they did Pretoria. But when we spoke to Mabunda about this um, and the reason why the prosecution team had tried to block this move of Rosemary, um, they were under the impression that Rosemary wanted to go back to the Johannesburg prison because perhaps she had better connections there than she did at Jose Mamburu. So they, they did all they could and they put in um, their reasons to the court as to why they believed she should remain in a maximum facility. So this was how um, the intimidation uh, charges actually unfolded for Rosemary. Now, we know that this case, this intimidation case, uh, is yet to make it before the courts. The case is still being investigated and will be in courts quite soon, according to what uh, Mabunda has uh, told us. And while Nglovo seemed to be working behind the scenes to intimidate anyone who might be able to point a finger at her, Advocate Williams also suggests that she may have been putting on a show for the media as well. Rosemary and Lovu did not show those antics uh, like when the press started following the case. Uh, prior to that, we presented the evidence of 54 state witnesses and she was calm. She greeted me every morning. She was calm and collected. Each and every day she greeted me up until the end. We greeted one another. Um, because remember, even though she's a criminal and even she's a murderer, she's still a human being. And in terms of our constitution, constitution, she deserves the rights of another human being. I know a lot of members of society are up in arms about it. But however, it's not my duty to destroy a person. It's my duty to place the facts in front of the court and for the court to make an informed decision regarding her guilt. But I believe Normia was guilty from the onset. And she was calm and collected when she addressed me. It was only when the media came in when she really took, you know, I think she was, I can't even explain what happened there. You know, we saw the videos, what she did, how she threatened journalists, how she threw chips at them. And it was actually a shame. I, she made a mockery of the entire process. Naledi was also in the courtroom with Nglovu. And here's the impression she got off in Glovu when the media started to arrive. When uh, I started attending the trial of uh, Rosemary Nglovu, um, I remember walking into the courtroom and I was the only journalist who was there. And uh, there were a lot of court orderlies and as well as the prosecutor, the investigating officer and obviously Rosemary Nglovu's lawyer. Rosemary seemed like a normal lady, like any lady from next door. She was cool, calm, collected and cordial even with all the court uh, staff. She carried herself um, like a lady. But the script somehow flipped when uh, the media started to attend the court proceedings in large numbers. I remember the very first day when all the TV cameras uh, uh, attended court for the very first time and there were photographers and everybody just wanted to get pictures of uh, Numia Rosemary Lovu. 
for the first time we saw a completely different persona to her where it started off as her seemingly enjoying all the attention that she was getting from the press. I remember how on that day she fanned herself and asked reporters whether they were satisfied with the shots that they'd received of her. And I remember her even having a conversation um, with one reporter asking whether, you know, like even complimenting the reporter, talking about how... Um, he looked good, you know. So she seemed to enjoy and feed off of all the, the attention that she was getting from the press. But, you know, I guess I don't know what exactly made Rosemary to change. But it didn't take long. Before the end of that week, Rosemary had seemingly had enough of the media. And uh, we saw at one point as she was walking out of the courtroom, she got irritated with a photographer who was pointing um, his camera at her. And, you know, she, she smacked his hand trying to move him out of the way. There was also a time when um, as uh, court orderlies had led her out of the courtroom and the media was following her around with uh, their cameras, Rosemary could not hide her irritation and her disapproval at having the media there and document documenting rather this moment when she was going to be led into the police van. Rosemary actually took um, the chips that she had had in her hand and she flung them um, at journalists. And we saw police officers trying to block her and trying to stop her from assaulting um, the media personnel that was there capturing this moment. But, you know, she wasn't afraid of the media. She wasn't afraid of all these things being captured on camera. You know, like she, she boldly and brazenly did what she did. Uh, but it was a very sore sight because I'm sure a day or two later, she walked into the courtroom and now um, her feet were shackled. And, you know, she even complained of the pain and all of that to um, the judge. <laughs> And I think um, these were measures that were put in place because they had seen um, the violent streak uh, that she had displayed over um, a day or two uh, prior to that. And, you know, um, it was actually heartbreaking to see because after this, Rosemary would sit in the in the dock and, you know, you know, like she just she just sat there looking drained as uh, photographers uh, took uh, different pictures of her. But one thing that never changed about Rosemary was whenever she attended court, she always tried her best to look on point. She didn't have a lot of outfits behind bars, but she made sure that she took care of her appearance, different hairstyles every day, every day or so. You know, so she 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 put in an effort um, when it came to her looks, knowing very well that all these cameras were going to be pointed rather uh, at her. But uh, you know. Over the days, as, as the trial progressed and as she started to get used to the media being there, she sort of toned down um, the, the, the feistiness and even the, the aggression that she showed towards the media. I don't know whether this was because uh, she had started to accept that the media was not going anywhere or whether perhaps, I don't know, she realized that her behaving in the way that she did only made things more difficult for her you know so we started to see her just you know become i don't know numb towards the media she would get to court and make it seem like she did not notice them at all she would fan herself she would just uh, face straight ahead or she would look down she'd fiddle with whatever she had in her position but you know she paid absolutely no mind to the media at all at that point in time 
Now, this was until we saw that very last outburst that happened in court just before she was led out by court orderlies. This is when she turned to the court gallery and looked at all the people who were there, who had been to testify, who had been there to testify in the mitigation of her sentence. Rosemary had looked at them and told them that, you know what, she'd be back by next year Christmas. She would be out of jail and she would be back, even saying that she was not born in jail, so she would not die in jail. But, you know, Rosemary, I don't know whether her conduct as well was fueled by the fact that she wasn't afraid of the police officers or the court orderlies who were there um, to guard her. There was always a large group of police officers who was there to guard her. But I think it came from the fact that Rosemary herself was a former police officer. So they tended to be more cordial with her. And I remember on the very last day of proceedings as well, she she even thanked um, the, the the police officers who transported her each day from Hosimamburu Prison in Pretoria to court. She thanked them for treating her humanly. And I feel like in a, in a lot of ways, the police officers went a bit easier on her because of the fact that she was previously one of them. We still don't understand why Inglovu began to act so oddly when she was thrust into the public limelight. And without her insight on the matter, we likely will never know for sure. What we do know is that by the time she was being prosecuted for murdering her family for money, she actually had very little money to show for it. No, no, she never had a life of millionaire. She was a sergeant in the police and her salary was sufficient to sustain a normal individual day to day. Um, but she doesn't have a house. She doesn't have a car. Uh, when she was arrested, she had a private attorney, but he also had to withdraw because there was no funds available. Normia has no cash left. So there's nothing even for us to go and attach. No value, no money. There's no money left. She's wasted everything. Advocate Williams thinks that that money may have been used to feed a gambling addiction. Uh, We know she acknowledged in the onset she and one of the witnesses, Sebasile Kunene, Vincent Kunene's sister, went to gamble quite often at Emperor's Palace Casino. However, the extent of a gambling addiction, I believe it was an addiction and she had to feed this addiction of hers. However, she did not blame addiction to gambling, you know, so it's not a a point for us to move forward and say, yes, it was a gambling. Let's take that. You know, she never, that was never an, a straight answer. So, yes, uh, but yeah, she had a gambling habit, I believe. Now, Lady describes what we do know about where the money may have gone, but says that it's one of those things that without Rosemary's direct input, we'll just never really know. For a lot of people, 1.4 million rand could be seen as a lot of money. But uh, in the case of Rosemary Nomei and Lovu, this clearly wasn't the case. Um, you know, one of the things that came out from the presiding judge, Ramarumo Monama, during the trial was that Rosemary had absolutely nothing to show that she had once had 1.4 million rand in her account, money that she had not worked for because... At the end of the day, Rosemary did not have a house. 
Rosemary did not even have a car at the time of her arrest. In fact, so bad were things in Rosemary uh, Nlovo's life at the time that uh, she said in her own words that she had uh, owed a loan shark some money and uh, the loan shark had actually taken her vehicle and uh, she was hoping that by her sister dying she could cash out on insurance policies and pay back this loan shark and uh, perhaps get her vehicle back. But, you know, still that doesn't really answer the question of what happened to the 1.4 million that she had received uh, between 2012 and 2018. Now, one of the things that came out uh, during the trial was that Namia Rosemarie Lovo said she took care of her mother back at home in Bushbuck Ridge. Now, Paige, I visited the home in Bushbuck Ridge, the home where Rosemary grew up and where her mother lives to this day. And, you know, just from the exterior of the house, there's nothing really uh, I can say different or or special or made the house stand out from all the other houses in the village uh, where uh, Rosemary lived. And we knocked on the door and uh, Rosemary's mother actually let us into the house. And, you know, for somebody who has a daughter who at one point in their life had this large sum of money come into the account, I was thinking perhaps we would see new or fancy furniture or anything like that. But that wasn't the case when we entered uh, Nomia Rosemary Lovo's home. Instead, there were old furniture pieces, you know, antique pieces, and the mother lived a very modest life. And she actually even took us out to the back of her house where she showed us, you know, her vegetable garden and the likes. So uh, Rosemary's sister, Joyce and Lovo, we also spoke to her and we asked, you know, did Rosemary's life change at any point in time? Did Rosemary spoil the family with with gifts or anything like that um, after the funerals of all um, these relatives. And, you know, Joyce said that wasn't the case at all. Instead, she said uh, to Times Live that what would happen was on some occasion, Rosemary would come home with, you know, some extra meat and she would hand those over to, to Joyce and her children. But other than that, there was no life of luxury that they saw um, in Rosemary. But something else that came out during the trial was that Rosemary was a huge fan of uh, gambling. She was a regular at Empress Palace in uh, Kempton Park. And this is the place where actually once upon a time she's alleged to have won um, a vehicle. So, uh, but, you know, the prosecution tried to push this notion that perhaps Rosemary spent a lot of this money um, at the slot machines and that's how she lost it. But she quickly shot down um, these allegations saying that, yes, she did enjoy gambling. She did it for entertainment purposes. But when she had money, she had absolutely no reason to go to the casinos. So she made it seem like the casino was a place that she turned to when, you know, in need for cash. But honestly speaking, looking at the things that Rosemary did over the over the years or between 2012 and 2018 and the person that she was when she was arrested, she absolutely had nothing to show um, for, for, for the crimes that she had committed. And, you know, even when it came to the funerals themselves, the funerals of the victims, Rosemary, we heard, was very, I don't know, for lack of a better word, stingy when it came to contributing towards the funerals. We heard how, for example, um, when it came to the funeral of witness Madala Homo, um, she had claimed 131,000 rand in uh, insurance policies. But when it came to contributions, uh, Homo's mother told the court that Rosemary only spent uh, or only uh, rather contributed 200 rand for the funeral. So I don't know, perhaps it's a case of, 
you know, money that you haven't worked hard for. Um, perhaps she failed to 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 properly utilize the money because of those reasons. But we the dust has now begun to settle on the Nglovu case. And as far as Sergeant Mabunde is concerned, Nglovu will serve out the rest of her days in prison. Remember, a life sentence, you must spend 25 years in prison without qualifying for the parole. It doesn't mean that uh, after 25 years, you automatically go out. No, it's a process. And you look at Rosemary's age, she's 46 now. At, at, at after 25 years, how, how old will she be? About 81. Yeah, somewhere there. 71. 71. And she applies. And is dragged for 10 years applying for that parole. And, and with that report from a psychiatrist of CPS, it will, it will, it will disadvantage her. She is dangerous. It will be looked upon it that, no, is this person qualifying to get a parole? So I don't think she'll get it. I don't think so. Unless, unless she gets, get terminally ill. Then, then that's where maybe. But it is possible that Nglovu's depravity may have even reached beyond what we heard while she was on trial. It's possible, but not proven, that Nglovu may have had a hand in her own son's death. At least, Advocate Williams and Sergeant Mabunda have their suspicions. I cannot really at this stage divulge much. It's just John T was admitted to hospital. We passed away and his mom was there. Rosemary and Lovu was there, present. And it's sad. This is one of the sad cases. And I hope we can bring justice for John T as well. Do you know whether she claimed on any insurance policy? She did. In this matter, she did in fact claim. There was evidence in our matters about presented that there was uh, claims made on behalf after the death of Jonti. However, at the stage of proceeding with the trial, there was insufficient evidence for us to determine the cause of death. So for us to proceed with the trial, we had to make a decision. Do we proceed with that trial or do we halt this matter for another year pending the investigation in this case? And if one take into consideration that Rosemary and Lovu was in custody already for three years, it was not in the interest of justice to keep her as a trial awaiting uh, prisoner, waiting further investigation in this matter. So we're still going to investigate this case. And make it I couldn't place that docket on the, to edit on this uh, matter on the, that she was facing because I couldn't prove. If it was said poison, I was going to charge her for the murder of her son, Gentile. But do you believe she killed John? I believe she killed John. It's hard not to feel sorry for Nglovu's family. They have without a doubt suffered at her hand. And worse still, by all accounts, Nglovu just didn't seem remorseful. Had she taken to the stand and even apologized had it not been for the media? Do you think she would no. have done things differently? No. No. Rosemary, nor me I'm not a psychologist and I'm... Um, I did not interview her with regards to um, her personal circumstances and everything. But from the report from Colonel Myberg, who testified during sentencing and aggravation, it's clear Normia Rosemary and Lovu was a manipulative um, individual 
with no remorse. She would never have um, apologized to any of the victims or any of the deeds. She would only apologize to make it seem to court that she was remorseful, but she wasn't. Because if you asked her, why are you um, saying that you are sorry? She had a reason. She had a um, reason for being sorry. It's not because I've killed these individuals, but because the family members think I killed them. That is not an apology. That is not remorse. And it's our duty and the court's duty and task to establish whether or not an in individual, an accused person, real remorse. Is it real remorse or are you playing for the media, for the court, for the cameras? So, yeah, I don't think normally I would ever have been open and apologized and took responsibility for what she have done. Now for us to talk about uh, that apology that Rosemary gave on the stand on the very last day of proceedings. That was very unexpected because uh, although we had seen Rosemary break down in court uh, a few times, it was mostly around the times when she spoke about her deceased late lover, Morris Mabasa, and a few times when she spoke about her sister, Audrey Somis Andlovo. But on this very last day of proceedings, Rosemary called out the surnames of all the people that she had killed one by one and apologized to their family members. But in a twist of things and in true Rosemary style, she was quick to point out that she was not apologizing because she was admitting to being the one who was behind these killings. Instead, she said she apologized to the families for the pain that they felt. And she said it pained her to know that uh, these people all believed that she was the one who was behind these brutal murders. And Rosemary maintained, however, that she was not the one who killed these six people. She said her tears were brought about because uh, she too had felt the pain. She too had felt the losses. And she even went on to say that oh, it was only God who knew the truth about what had actually happened to these six people who she was accused of killing. But it didn't take long for Rosemary Ndlovu to flip the script. You know, for lack of a better word, she soon showed her horns. Just before she left uh, the courtroom on that day, she turned into the court gallery and looked into um, a space in the gallery where uh, a group of people, these are all her family members and the family members of uh, other victims who she killed, where they were all standing watching her and she was about to be led out of the courtroom. Now she was about to go start serving her six life sentences in the 125 years that she was handed down by the court. But, you know, that that uh, persona, that that character of uh, a pained and and and, you know, confused and hurt person that we had earlier seen on the stand had suddenly, you know, come off Rosemary when she looked straight into the court gallery. And she said uh, to all those witnesses that had testified against her that this would be one, the last Christmas that she would be spending behind bars. And next year she would be back. She would be back spending Christmas with them. Basically, it was like a warning to them saying, I will be back for you. Rosemary went as far as saying that she was not born in prison and therefore she wouldn't die in prison. You know, saying that was, it, it literally brought shivers down my spine. And even if you look at that footage from the courtroom, it's a completely different um, person than that that we had seen just an hour or two earlier who was breaking down and saying she is sorry for all the lives lost 
all that 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 pity or, or that I don't know I can't even say it was remorse but it was suddenly gone and the real Rosemary was coming out so did I buy the apology that Rosemary issued to the court on that day Mm-mm, not a chance after her sentencing, Nglovu made a dramatic exit from the courtroom, telling witnesses she would spend this Christmas behind bars, but would be back for them next year. But our unsung hero, Sergeant Mabunda, said that this was nothing to worry about, and simply, and I quote, the last kick of a dying horse. You've been listening to Boots on the Ground, Behind South Africa's National Headlines, a production of Times Live Podcasts and The Sunday Times. To get our latest episodes for free, subscribe on Iono FM, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pocket Cast, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Boots on the Ground, until next time, I've been your host, Paige Muller.